In our scripture reading this morning, it's the letter from uh, St. Paul to the church in Galatia. And and like Pastor Sarah's favorite WWF wrestlers, St. Paul is laying the smack down on St. Peter. There was confusion and debate within the early church over, over who was in and who was out and what exactly was required to be in. You see, Peter, Peter, the rock upon which the church was built, Peter, the guy who denied knowing Jesus three times as Jesus made his way with the cross up to Calvary, that Peter caved under pressure of of false teachers to add fluff to the gospel. Peter added shoulds and musts to the gospel. Peter added, this you must do to God, for God, to the good news of this is what God has done for you. And what should be a warning to all of us who think that we've got it all together and we completely understand the gospel. Peter, the first recipient of the gospel and the first preacher of the gospel, had reverted back to the law. In adding to the gospel, Peter was annulling the good news of what God had gone ahead and done for us, whether we like it or not, in Jesus Christ. Each of us, all of us in the room, are are attracted to false gospels. I mean, Paul even says that the law is written on our hearts. We want to be told what to do. You want your pastors to tell you what to do, if only so that we can judge our neighbor's shortcomings. All of us have fallen short of righteousness, Scripture says. That does not stop us from measuring distances, especially the distances of others' shortcomings. Each of us, like St. Peter, adds a list of shoulds to what others must do to be justified, made righteous before God. And more often than not, those shoulds and musts prescribed to others, and even to ourselves, contradict Jesus' own words. Or even worse, the shoulds and musts that we prescribe for others run contrary to the lives we ourselves are living. Shoulds and musts, shoulding all over Jesus, it's dangerous for the church. Over the past few months, in three docu-series, we have seen what happens when shoulds and musts are added to the gospel. Whether it was Hillsong Church, an international megachurch that covered up years of sexual abuse by their pastors across multiple continents. Or the Duggars. You all remember the Duggar family of like a hundred kids and counting. The Duggars on TLC who used the shoulds and musts of purity culture to control the women and children in their homes. The law was required to earn righteousness. All the while, those doing the prescribing were abusing the very people that they were prescribing to. Shoulds and musts are dangerous because inevitably they are the way that we create God in our own image. Not the other way. St. Paul is making the point that shoulds and musts 
the law prescribed to Gentile Christians by their Jewish counterparts was an attempt to rebuild the barriers that Jesus Christ has broken down. Paul argues that what we do, the lovely, nice church things that we do or tell others that they must do, do not make us one ounce better in the eyes of God. And because these acts do not make us any more right, any more better, those shoulds and musts serve only as distractions from the good of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's clear in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's the things that we do. But through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified By faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. We might be justified in faith in Christ. Or as Dr. Beverly Gaventa points out, faith here could be a reference. It is a reference to belief or trust in Jesus or or to Jesus' own faithfulness. Shoulds and musts run contrary to to faith, to our own faith in Jesus Christ, but also the faithfulness of our crucified Messiah. The shoulds and musts of our lives serve only to dilute the grace of God. On the justification through faith, our made right before God and Christ's faithfulness, Episcopal priest Robert Capon writes that nothing needs to be added to the gospel. He writes that grace has to be drunk straight up. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. I've done my best over the past month or so, we'll say, to build up walls around me to keep my emotions at bay as my family and I prepare to leave Mount Olivet. But last week, last week during communion, I stood right there and I held the bread And Jim Coates had the audacity to come forward to receive communion. He had his hands held out. I had the bread in my hand. I pulled off a piece of bread and I placed it in his hand. I said, Jim, this is the body of Christ given for you, a sign of how much God loves you. And then Jim, Jim had the audacity to take my hand and say, amen. Then he added... God bless you, Pastor Tear. And in that moment, my walls came down. Pastor Sarah almost handed me the communion linen that was wrapped in bread so that I could blow my nose. (laughs) And this week, I've been reflecting on how I got here. Not like here to Arlington, but but here in, in, in this spot. You see, technically, I'm a second career pastor. I went to college to West Virginia Wesleyan College with the the intention of going into ministry, of studying religion and philosophy and all the things that I would need to know to be a great pastor. I was raised in the United Methodist Church and pastors like Robert Manthe, Gay Smith, and Ken Dunnington pressed into me to take the, the, the seriousness of God's grace. My pastors and mentors have persuaded me to ensure that no one, not a single person, misses out on the grace of God. 
I went to undergrad to study religion, but I walked away with a degree in criminal justice with minors in sociology and political science. The message that I heard on campus from the evangelical student groups replaced the good of the good news with shoulds and musts. Trading faith in Jesus Christ and Christ's own faithfulness with condemnation and judgment. Instead of being the body of Christ, the church, I was told, was to call out sin whenever possible. I know. WTF. Why the face? Needless to say, this ran contrary to what I had grown up hearing and being taught in the United Methodist Church and what I believed to be true. I wasn't willing to trade God's grace for condemnation, so I pivoted to criminal justice, sociology, political science, and of course, a fraternity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is scandalous because the good of the good news bypasses our sensibilities and declares that whether we like it or not, not only does God love you and God loves them, but you and they are forgiven fully, period, end of story. Christ crucified, dead, and raised has justified all of us before creation and before God. The Beyonce of the Episcopal Church, you know her as Reverend Fleming Rutledge, she wrote, Jesus is willing to die, even for such poor specimens as you and me, covering our unrighteousness with his righteousness, offering his life to save us from our death. Victorious over the old Adam, Jesus, the judge, judged in our place. He has compensated our too short list of good deeds with his one great deed. Our justification, righteousness, our forgiveness before God are not Jesus plus something else. Not Jesus plus certain church practices Not Jesus plus a specific, overly specific theological position. Not Jesus plus a political party. Not Jesus plus virtue signaling. Not Jesus plus shoulds and musts. And certainly not Jesus plus condemnation. If we add anything, if we add any should or must or any label to the gospel, then St. Paul is absolutely correct, as Jesus would have died for nothing. So not only are shoulds and musts dangerous as as, as they can turn into abuse within Christ's body, but they also annul the good of the good news. But, and it's a big but, so you know that it doesn't lie, Because of God's grace and because of God's faithfulness, we have been redeemed and we no longer have reason to worry. Through the waters of our baptism, which which sit at the center of our life together, we die to ourselves and we we are raised into new life in and through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In dying to ourselves, we can keep the grace of God at the forefront of our lives. Our faith in the faithfulness of Christ is enough because it is God's grace that transforms us, not our works from the inside out. In July of 2017, 
My family and I arrived at Mount Olivet. We actually moved in about a week earlier, but my first Sunday was the first Sunday in July. And I met Pastor Ed Walker, then senior pastor, in the middle of the sanctuary that first morning before the early service. Ed and I chit-chatted for a few minutes, and then he left to give me time to collect my thoughts before the first service. In the quietness of this room, my eyes were, were drawn up to the rose window above the cross. And on that summer's morning, the light from outside was coming in, illuminating each piece of the glass and bringing the image of Christ's ascension on the Mount of Olives into full focus. Without light, without light shining through it, stained glass is not much to look at. In a 2008 sermon at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, the late Pope Benedict said, from the outside, stained glass windows are dark, heavy, and even dreary. But from inside the church, from inside they suddenly come alive, reflecting the light that passes through them. They reveal their splendor. They reveal God's splendor. It is only from the inside, it is only from an experience of faith that we can see the church as she truly is, flooded by grace, resplendent in beauty, and adorned by the manifold gifts of God's Spirit. It follows then that we who live the life of grace within the church's communion are called to draw people to the mystery of that light. The grace of God draws all of us in. The grace of God draws us all together. It is the grace of God that called you to love me and my family when we first arrived here, when you had no other reason to trust me or love us. God's grace transforms us from the inside out and sends us out into the world to invite others to experience the mystery of light to experience the beauty of the grace that we ourselves have experienced. When we are filled with doubts or the shoulds and musts that we prescribe for others and ourselves feel as though they are too much, hear this good news. In the faithfulness, if the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is enough, then you need not worry about having enough faith. The grace of God is enough. Hear it in word. Feel it in water. And taste it at Christ's table of grace. Amen.